John chapter 2, verse 1, says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars. There were, um, for their Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill up the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out and take it to the master of the feasts. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now that become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then people have drunk freely than the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs of Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And this... Um, And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So as we continue through our study in the book of John, the name of this series and the reason why we've named it this way is God Revealed. The whole purpose of John was to display Jesus and was to show God that Jesus coming into the world was revealing God's character, his heart, everything that he was, so that people could have a tangible, physical representation. They could, they could know God in a very intimate relationship. And so we're going to continue through that. So last week, we see Jesus calling his first disciples, and we saw that how their story, although was every story of the disciples following Jesus was very different, we were able to connect with that, knowing that our story is different. And so this week, we're starting the first of the signs or the miracles that Jesus performed in the book of John. John, the author, focuses on seven primary signs, he calls them signs or miracles, to display or communicate something about Jesus. All of the Gospels are going to focus on different things, but John's goal is that to focus on these miracles. In John 20, 30, he gives us his goal. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John's going to focus on seven. John 2, 1 through 11, which is what we're looking at today is water and wine. John 4, he's going to have healing of the nobleman's son. John 5 is healing at the pool of Bethesda. Then John 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. Also, there's Jesus walking on the water in John chapter 6. John 9 is healing of the, born, the man born blind, and then John 11 is Lazarus being raised to dead. And so John's choosing these to show something about Jesus. So today, I'm sitting here looking at this, and I'm like, Lord, what do you want us to know about you changing water into wine? Like, it seems really random that he starts here, but let's look, get into it a little bit. So let me set the stage. First off, it starts off with the idea, it says, on the third day, okay? 
Now, John is being very intentional when he's writing the book of John. If you were here from our first week, I apologize it's not online because it didn't get recorded, but even last week, John is taking us back to the beginning. It's as though he's saying, hey, there is a new creation beginning, and it's starting with Jesus. So anybody reading John chapter 1 is going to be totally connected with Genesis chapter 1, and they're going to hear that in the beginning was the word, but they're hearing in the beginning was God, right? And they're drawing all these connections, and it's almost as though John here in the first two chapters, he focuses on seven days. It's almost as he's breaking down a new week. And so this third day is the third day after Nathaniel was called. And so with that, it's the final, essentially it's the final day of this new week, of the seventh day in John's story. And as John is showing that God is making this, the world, this new creation, it's really the beginning of our story. And so in this third day, what do we start with? We start with a wedding, which I think is beautiful because also in Genesis, we see it starts with a wedding also, right? Adam and Eve. And it talks about wedding, a man should leave his father and mother and be one with his wife and, and all of these things, right? The two should become one flesh. And so in this wedding, we see that Jesus' mother was primarily invited. Now, one thing we want to look at and, and think about as we're processing when it comes to a Jewish wedding is this. It's not like ours, okay? Our wedding is like, maybe if things get a little wild, six hours, right? I mean, there's tons of planning going into it, but they're usually a couple hours, right? You, you go to the wedding, they have a reception, everybody goes home, right? Hopefully nobody makes poor choices, but... The, their wedding was a week long, okay, a week long. And the wedding was, was a really, uh, it was the culmination of, of this long process. There was a betrothal time, which is like our version of engagement, but it would be about a year. And then the groom would be preparing a place for his bride and, and getting the house ready. And then when he was ready, he would go and he'd take his wife and they'd have this procession and they'd come to the house and they would have this feast and invite all their friends and all their neighbors. And it would be like a week long. And the expectation was that they would provide all the food and all the drink for an entire week. And Jesus' mother was essentially in, invited into this and she seemed like a primary guest. Now it was also, it was in Cana, we hear, which is the hometown of Nathanael, which we find that out in John chapter 21. And so we're starting to see these connections. Nathanael just started following Jesus. Maybe he is somehow connected to the wedding party, and he's like, I'm following Jesus now. Like, let's bring all the disciples and, and have this party. And Jesus' mother comes to him in the middle of all of this, which implies that maybe she was responsible in some way for this or knew the person that was responsible. And she comes to him, and she... She pleads with him, they ran out of wine in uh, John chapter 2, verses 3. He's like, they ran out of wine. That's huge. To run out of wine at a party, in a, at a wedding, was beyond shameful. It communicated either you're poor, which nobody wanted to be called that, or you didn't plan well enough. And everybody's expectation is we're going to have this really awesome feast for a week long, and then we run out of wine. That's a key part of the party, right? Just like it is today, unfortunately. <laughs> but there it was a shame piece, right? And so for, the, for them to run out of something, 
was poor planning. It, 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 was, it, was a bit, it was shameful. Like, it would be one of those things, like, and it's a small community. Canaan's not big, right? So it's like a little community be like, oh, yeah, like, remember then they ran out of wine? Like, it will always come up. We're like, we don't want to be like those guys, right? So it, they will live it for the rest of their life. And so it was a big deal, right? And us would be like, whatever, go get some more. It wasn't like that. And with wine, it was also a symbol of joy and being merry and celebration, right? It was always a kind of with that. And so to run out of that was really to bring the joy and the life out of this celebration of marriage. So she comes to Jesus. Now, Jesus' response, woman, okay, today, if my wife said something, I'm like, well, listen, woman, like that wouldn't be respectful. But in that culture, he, he said it in a very respectful way. It's like, woman, it, now, now is not my time. Okay, so we want to make sure Jesus wasn't talking down to his mother. He was showing their utmost love and respect. In our culture, I wouldn't recommend any of the men doing that today. It will not go well, I promise you. But back then, it was a, it was, he was doing it in a very respectful way, and he was honoring his mother, um, almost as though she, he was not referring to his mother, because in this scenario, it, that relationship, he was just like, just like anyone else, like, madam, kind of the same kind of idea. Madam, now is not my time. And so... And he says to her, what does this have to do with me? Now, the hour that he's talking about here is the hour, a couple times, it depends on who you're reading, but it could be the hour that he reveals himself as the Messiah or the hour of being on the cross, which is kind of one and the same in a lot of times. And he's saying, listen, it's not time for me to reveal who I am to the world, okay? The, he had a plan and a process. But his mom, being his mom, obviously knowing who he is, okay, she went to him because she knew who he was. She knew that he had the power to do this. She had faith, right? Says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, which is pretty good advice, I think, even for us. She had the faith. She called the servants to follow him. And so we have this catastrophe that strikes. The crisis is averted because Jesus gets involved. So he says to the servants, Go fill these jars up with water. Now, these, these jars were for purification. So in a Jewish culture, purification was very, very important. And it wasn't even like you were really pure. It was more symbolic, right? So they, they would do a certain type of washing of water, let it run off their fingers. Like, like there was still bacteria. Like, it wasn't like they were actually, like, you know, 100% um, sterile, right? But it was this ceremonial stuff. And so this water was used for that. This, this, these jars were used for this purification process, for the, for like, especially for the wedding. And so as the water had run out, he says, fill up these jars with water. And there was 20 to 30 gallons, making it about anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons total. And so with these stone pots, it wasn't necessarily there for drinking. Like I said, they were for purification. And so what do the servants do? They fill them up like all the way to the brim, which I love that. These servants are like, yeah, let's go, man. Let's do it. All the way up. So then Jesus goes to him and he says to him, um, I mean, here, take some of that water that's not in the drinking pots, but in the purification pots, and take it to the master of the ceremonies, which would be like the MC, the person that's leading the wedding, kind of, the, the, yeah, the master of the ceremonies. Imagine what these guys are thinking, right? They pull out this water, they know where it comes from, and they're walking like, man, what do you think is going to happen, right? Like, as they give it to this guy, his mind is blown. The master of the feast tastes the wine and he's blown away. He says, this wine is like really good, like good wine, okay? Now, this wine was, so what that would happen to save money, 
in this week-long festival is they would bring out the good wine that tasted good, and after people had drunk a little bit, right, their palate was not as what it once was, okay? And then they'd bring out the bad wine because it's cheaper, okay? Um, now, that means that this had alcohol in it, okay? It's, it's not like a, this is not like grape juice. This is it's alcoholic wine. And um, anybody that's unfortunately been in that party scene, like I remember when I was in my younger years, you know that you get going, it doesn't really matter what you're drinking at the end, right? So that's what's going on here. So the, the master of the ceremony is like, you know, usually you guys bust out the, the bad stuff uh, at the very end, and you've actually saved it for the, the end, right? Which I love that Jesus doesn't do anything halfway, right? He, he's like, if I'm going to make water and wine, it's going to be good. I mean, I wish... Like the most expensive bottle of wine is, is supposedly was vented and owned by Thomas Jefferson and it went for like $200,000. But like imagine how rare this wine is. Jesus made it, right? And with this wine, what was, what's interesting to me is that, um, is that he cared about this bridegroom and this the bride. Like he cared that there, he didn't have to make wine. Like it, it wasn't a need right? But the fact that it would have not been there would have caused so much shame and so much embarrassment that not only does he make it and care for this couple as they're starting their life and their families that put on this, this festival, but he did it well, where they received honor. Where they could have been receiving shame, they received honor. Really, this is a miracle of compassion. If we're trying to understand why these miracles, like what does it have to do with Jesus it was a miracle of compassion. He cared about these people. Even though they hadn't prepared well, okay? They ran out of wine because they didn't plan well or they didn't have the money, but like, it wasn't like they were like, it was an accident. It, it, they didn't do well. He still came through and, and took care of them and cared for them. And it's just a picture of grace and compassion. And with that, also, we see that Jesus cares about enriching human life. Like, he wasn't just going to make it, like, just good enough. He could have made it worse, but he made it better. He made it better wine. And I think the third thing we kind of see is that celebration is good. Like, Jesus enjoyed the gladness of human life. He was celebrating with these people. I think sometimes Jesus is portrayed as this somber, like, um, just very pious person. And Jesus obviously was perfect, but Jesus enjoyed celebration, and he, he, went, and he went to funerals, and, but he, like, he had a good time, and he enjoyed people, and he was around just the gladness that he's experienced. Like, he joked. I think Jesus had a hilarious sense of humor. John records some of his best, like, just zingers, which I really love when he talks to the Pharisees. He, he, he gets, he's witty, man. Like, he was a human being like you and I, and he enjoyed celebration. And, he, and for these, this couple, he cared about them and not wanting it to end for them, essentially. So with that, we see that in this first sign, a few things are revealed. Because as we're looking at signs, they're up to point us to Jesus. And the reason why we're focusing on this is, and I've mentioned this at the very beginning of our series, and, and this is really kind of how I function, is, is I believe that the Bible is very clear that as we see and understand God more, we're changed. 
The only way that happens is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not like we just say the right words. But that how, if we want to be made more, if we want to know God more and, and be made more in the image of Jesus, involves knowing Him and seeing Him. And we can never see and understand God completely because He's so vast. But there are times where we can see elements of Him that maybe we didn't notice or things that we can focus on that we maybe didn't focus on before. And what that does is it changes our emphasis. Where rather, you know, like I've mentioned before, I come from a background where, where it was this idea of do, do, do. Like I read to do. Like what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And when I'm doing well, I'm acceptable to God. And when I'm not doing well, I'm not acceptable to God. And I'm hoping that I try hard enough and work hard enough that it changes, that I change enough to be better. But what I see throughout Scripture is Jesus calling people into relationship with himself. Inviting them in to be loved by himself. And as they know him, they are changed by him. And where it ends the same, we do change and we do do different things, but it's not, we don't do to be loved, it's because we're loved that we do. And it is a slippery, like it is, a, that is, it looks the same, right? But it is so different ends of the spectrum. And so every time we're in the scripture, every time we're reading, our goal is saying, what does this communicate about God? What does this communicate about Jesus? What work and action do I see God doing? Then I can go in light of that, how do I see myself or what, what identity pieces? Or maybe I'm, I'm tr- I see I'm finding my identity in this or where am I in this story, right? And then we can respond, which is a worship posture. Well, then how do I respond to this? Maybe there's something I need to change. Maybe there's something I need to repent of. Maybe there's something I'm believing that isn't, isn't good, right? And so, what is revealed about Jesus from this sign? First off, it shows his power over creation, okay? What's interesting is when Jesus was hungry, he was tempted by, the, by Satan to turn a rock into a piece of bread. And he didn't do it. But here... He's asked to help, and he turns water into wine, and he does do it. What's the difference? The difference was is that he, the power that he possessed, he used for someone else rather than himself. I can go down a rabbit hole on power right now that will just, it blows my mind. Power belongs to God. We screw it up all the time because we use it for ourselves. Power, the reason why God can possess it is he uses it for others. God never uses it for himself. The problems in the world today is because human beings possess power and they use it for their own benefit. You all imagine if you watch any superhero movies or whatever, like, wonder what I have that power. I can tell you what we do with that power. It wouldn't be good. Because we can't handle it. We can't handle it. We have to protect ourselves from it. And Jesus uses his power always, always, always for other people. He never uses it for himself. And this is one of the things about Jesus. I mean, listen, there's a lot of things that astound me about Jesus. The fact that he lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father, that's pretty amazing. I can't even fathom that. Like, not only did he not do anything wrong, he didn't think anything wrong. Okay? He's a pretty amazing guy. But he had all the power, and he never once used it for himself. 
he submitted to the Father in every area. He relied on the Holy Spirit in every area. That is awesome. Another thing that we see about Jesus in this miracle that I've never seen before is we see his power over time. Think about this. How is wine made? Well, first you've got to grow the grapes. Okay, that takes a little bit. And then you've got to harvest the grapes, and then you've got to crush the grapes, and then you've got to put them in a barrel. I think that's how it works. Something. Then you let it sit for a long time. The fermenting process isn't quick. Let's say it takes at least a year from harvest, from planting the seed to harvest to that. Jesus accomplished this in seconds. He exists outside of time, and he has the power over time. And good wine takes even longer than that, right? And so here he is busting out the best wine. Having power over time is something so powerful because if you think about it, like Jesus could, he chose to willingly operate within our confines of time. Think about how many things, if you had the power to speed it up, you would. I can think of suffering and pain. I'd bust through that quick. Maybe just avoid it altogether, right? Jesus willingly remained in it. I think about him on the cross. He had the power to come off the cross. He had the power to remove himself. He had a power to, to be out of the pain, out of the suffering. He could have not only wiped everyone out, but he could have stopped it in an instant. And he didn't. He remained for you, for me, for us, so that we might be with him. He had us in mind, and he remained in that space and in that time. Another thing I think is beautiful about this is that it showed his power to the least. The servants knew. Not the, not the guest of honor, not even the bride and groom, not the master of ceremonies, the servants. He included the servants in his first miracle. The least of society. They got to participate with him. They were eyewitnesses to his power and his glory and his greatness. He also revealed himself to his disciples who were nobodies, fishermen and random guys that nobody knew. In fact, it says the end of the text that we're looking at today, it says that they, they his, um, this is the first of the signs in verse 11, that Jesus in Cana, Cana and his manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. What's cool about this is that his disciples had already believed, right? They started following him. But it says they believed on him again. What is that saying? It's the same thing that I kind of started with, this idea that, that we're seeing more and more of Jesus, right? Like that's what, our, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus is we're learning him more and more. I mean, I've been married. I've been going on, I've been married for like 18 years next week. And the more I know my wife, the more I love her and it's a more richer way. But like I look back when we first met, like I had no idea who this woman was. None, right? We were, remember how you, when you first came here, you're like, we're like alike in every way. You're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're not. You're just not. We're not. We're so different, right? And the more you get to know this person, you're like, wow, we are so different. But like this love like matures and it grows and it's, it's more rich, right? You endure pain and suffering and it's just, it's more hearty. 
the more we follow Jesus, the more we see aspects of him that maybe we didn't see, the more we understand God, the more we see his beauty and his glory, and, and we believe more. We, because belief is the word, it's the same word for trust, right? Like, we trust him more. And so here, the disciples who had already devoted, again, at least most of them, trying to devote their life to him, following him, they already believed. They already like, yeah, you're the Messiah. But then they're like, whoa, you're better than just the Messiah I thought you were, right? Like, you're better. And so it says they believed. Jesus was able to reveal himself to those that he chose, which I think is awesome, while at the exact same time allowing nobody else to know who he was. And where he should have been receiving all the honor, he was able to give the honor to the bride and groom. I mean, that in itself is amazing. Like, he did this most amazing miracle, and the people that he wanted to know were like, you are, man, you're awesome, you're the son of God, I believe and I trust in you. While at the same time, everybody else that was present, he's like, they get all the honor for what I did. And so, as we kind of close out our time, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed. Manifested his glory, it's subtle, right? He made wine. He showed that it has power over creation and time. He's revealing something about God. The fact that he chose to remain in that space for us, like hopefully it stirs us in regards to our belief. That as I talked about how he remained on the cross and remained in that space, hopefully our awe for him is raised up a little bit, that we see him, that, that he stuck through and remained in every moment of pain and suffering for us. But also, we want us and our trust for him to grow as well. That as we're seeing him and as we see more of him, that we can trust him more. And that's something that I think is really hard. I, I know that it's easy, I think, to say I trust God when everything is going awesome. But it's harder when things are not going well. And if your tendency is anything like mine, I want to get my hands on the situation and I want to like help God out a little bit because maybe he's not seeing this element over here. One of my favorite chapters in Psalm is Psalm 37. And I think this verse is definitely part of what we're talking about. Verse 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. The word befriend there could also mean feed on, right? Feed on God's faithfulness, right? This idea of, of trusting the shepherd as he brings us in to the land where he has us and feeding on his faithfulness, trusting that we're right where he set us. And then it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I know we've probably seen that on coffee cups and stuff in Christian bookstores, but... Let me tell you what this means. Delight means be pliable, be soft, moldable. This idea that as we're delighting, right, even if we're, it's like, even I went back to the marriage analogy, it's like as I'm loving my spouse, it, I, I, it puts me in a posture of change. I don't have to have it my way. Like I'm, 
I mean, delighting to the point where I'm moldable, I'm, I'm pliable. He says, as you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you the desires of your heart. What He's not saying is you get what you want. Okay? Because I, I would never want to be like, hey, if you just do enough, because I think the American church has done enough damage in this way. If you trust God enough, you do enough, God will bless you and give you everything you want, make you rich and healthy and wise and all this other stuff that's just not necessarily true. But what it's saying here is as you delight yourself in the Lord, He gives you desires. It's not that you get what you want, but you end up wanting what you get. And anybody that's followed Jesus for any significant amount of time well, I think can understand this and know this, that our desires change, okay? The things I want now, I would have never guessed when I first started following Jesus. My desires have changed because as I've delighted myself in the Lord, He's given me new desires. And He's given you new desires. But then He comes to this last piece, and in verse 5, it says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust Him, and He will act. The word commit means to roll over on. It, it's almost a picture of a, of a servant or an or a animal being burdened and bogged down by a, a burden, and they're taking that and they're rolling it over on something else to carry. And he's saying commit your way, your future, whatever it is to the Lord. And then it says trust him, and he will bring it to pass. It's safe to say that as we roll over the things that are weighing us down, the things that are burdening us, it's safe to say that he's going to bring it to pass. It may look different than we thought. But that's part of trusting him. It doesn't say just commit to him and then help him carry the load, right? It's, it's commit to him and trust him. I trust you. And that's what I want to leave you with today. Is I know, I know you might believe in him, and I know a lot of us believe in him. The question we always need to ask ourselves is, do I trust him? Do I trust him? That's the hard one. Often many of my prayers ends with that. It doesn't end with amen. But my personal prayers is, Lord, I trust you. Like, this is a hard thing. I don't know what to do here. I trust you. Because that's what belief is. A lot of people will tell you they believe in God, but I would ask them, do you believe him? Because he says a lot of things. And so, do you trust him? Do you trust that he's good? Do you trust that he's good? Maybe it's an area, do you trust, do you trust that he's great, that he's able to do these things that seem impossible? Or do you trust that he's glorious? That I don't have to prove myself to anybody. His glory is enough. Do you trust that he's gracious? that you don't have to earn it or prove it or work it off. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you.